0: That's just not true. You find problems with children being in harm's way that cuts across all ethnicity and across all socioeconomic strata. True?
1: Absolutely. It doesn't matter what zip code you live in, what your income is. People are people. They have the same issues.
0: And do you use family resources first?
1: Yeah, the relative caregivers are our first option, but if they're not fingerprinted or they're not, you know, live scanned or whatever, and we don't know who else is in the home, we can't put a child
0: in a home, even though grandma's there. If you need help, it's out there. It's available. Okay, this is Dr. Phil, which means this is Phil in the Blanks, and I have a very special guest today. You guys have heard me say that I really like it when I get to do these with really good personal friends. And there is no better personal friend than Dr. Charles Sophie. And let me brag on him for a minute. So dig your toe in the carpet right, and blush for a minute. All right. Dr. Sophie is a psychiatrist. He's board certified child and adult psychiatry. He works with populations in general medicine, psychiatry. He's the medical director of the L.A. County Department of Child and Family Services, which is the largest agency of its kind in the United States. And I point that out because when you have an agency this big with this much coverage and intensity, if you don't see it here, you're not going to see it. It's all seen here. And Robin accuses me of being a workaholic. She tells me there's no prize for the busiest person in the world. (laughs) There's just no award for that, so she tells me to quit trying to win it. But if somebody works more than I do, certainly crazier hours than I do, it's Dr. Charles Sophie. He has given more of his life, more of his passion, more of his soul to the Department of Child and Family Services than anybody I have ever seen, and I know they appreciate it. But this is a guy that he'll be in a home at 2 a.m. and get three hours sleep and then be on the witness stand down in the family court the next morning at 8.30. Then he's got practice. He does all the different things. Dr. Sophie received his medical degree from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. He's been in practice for way more than 20 (laughs) years. He's a frequent contributor on my show, The Today Show, been on The View, CNN, MSNBC, Dateline. He's an author. He wrote a great book called Side by Side, The Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Program for Conflict-Free Communication. He's got another book in the works right now, which I'm going to con him into letting me launch on Dr. Phil when it's done. He's just really prolific in the field of psychiatry. So that's who he is. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much. We have to add to that list of Robin's podcast I was on.
0: Well, that's right. He's been on I've Got a Secret my wife's podcast, Robin podcast. And that was really good. You guys did a good job on there. I want to go back. Well, I'm sure she will have you anytime. (laughs) Thank you. The reason I wanted to have you here now is because I want to talk about a particular subject matter. You know, I've done a lot of jury work and I would always say there are 13 personalities in the jury box. There are 12 individuals. And then there's the 13th personality, which is the collective personality of the jury. And I believe in collective personalities. Right now, I'm really wondering about several of the collective personalities in our society right now. I was watching the debate in Charleston, the Democratic debate, and I watched it turn into just a yelling, screaming match right. among candidates all with the same party. Right. I watch all of the vitriol that's going on in politics right now between Republicans and Democrats. I see the fracture that's going on in our society of people that just don't seem to be able to have civil conversations right now. What's happened to the discourse in America? Where's our psyche right now?
1: I think it's a really great question. It's a very sad situation. I mean, I think there's a couple variables that have brought themselves in that have taken everyone actually sideways. It's really kind of scary. And we see that at the department because the numbers of calls into the hotline are increasing because people are just, they're lost. They're not taking care of their kids, whether it's marijuana or whatever variable has come in. But some, several new things have really twisted things to the point where people have lost sight of what is really the path they should be on. And kids are suffering in big numbers.
0: Well, I think so as well. There was a time where people could disagree. I would see politicians on Capitol Hill, state politicians, people could disagree, and they would fight a passionate fight. They would have a passionate discourse on the floor of the Senate or the House. And then it would be time to take a break, and they would go to lunch together and treat each other with dignity and respect, even though they had passionate differences on important matters. And now that doesn't seem to be possible. It's like they have their passionate discourse, but then there seems to be real hatred and bitterness where they don't seem to be able to maintain a separate relationship on a personal level anymore. What's going on here?
1: I mean, do we see any role modeling of that anymore? We don't often see that of respect and integrity and accountability. So we see politicians alone, if you want to just look at that, that you have total disrespect, tweeting whatever you want, saying whatever you want, social media, allowing you the venue to be able to do all that kind of stuff. And within all of that, there's a the loss of self-respect, others' respect, all that kind of stuff that would keep people on track, that you could have a healthy argument with somebody in a debate and go have lunch with them. It's sad. It's uh, it's very sad.
0: Then I hear people say, "Well, I've just never seen such a divided country ever in our history." And I think, um, "Did you forget about the Civil War?" Right. Uh, Hello. I mean, That's right. It's it, right. Yeah, it's been a little worse than this before. Yeah. We were shooting each
1: other. Yeah, exactly. But it can get to that point.
0: Yeah, I really wonder if when we have the political conventions that are coming up in the summer if we're going to have riots in the streets.
1: I would worry about that, too, because, I mean, the the potential is all right there. People are really they're geared up. They're ready to go at each other. There's no seemingly any boundaries in place, no respect, none of that stuff.
0: Psychiatrically, what do you think people need to say to themselves? Because I think it all starts with us individually. Yeah. What do we need to do to restore some dignity, to our dialogue, some dignity to our discourse. I mean, What do people need to say to themselves so they don't contribute to the meltdown?
1: I think the only thing they can say is is what I'm do- about to say or what I'm about to do, a self-respecting prophecy. Am I doing something that I would respect and is going to make me respect myself, and then therefore others who see it or deal with it? If you're not in a self-respective kind of place, and that's not your kind of way that you address everything and that's the role, the model you come from you're just going to be you know saying whatever you want it's like no holds barred say what you want curse scream yell racial slur, whatever you want no there has to be boundaries and you have to start with yourself and if you don't start there and you don't have it with your children it's bleeding out of your house all over the place
0: well i think it starts with the leaders because you know they always say a fish stinks from the head right i think the leaders have to do this, whether it's Trump on the Republican side or Sanders or Biden or whoever on the Democratic side. I think they need to give the message to their supporters and their followers that, hey, I don't want to hear that right. out of you. Right. I don't want to hear that at our rallies. I don't want to hear it at the convention. I don't want us demonizing. The yep. other side, I don't want to hear this language where we're having these chants and all of these things. It's vitriol that's going to lead to some kind of Act, ramp up right. to inciting violence right. against right. other people. hundred
1: percent. Yes. They're leaders. They should be showing us the way to go and putting parameters and boundaries on.
0: Trump seems to really pull for that instead of quieting it down. And then we've seen it at Sanders events, there have been people that have been kind of going out of their way to start trouble. And they, of course, say, we don't endorse that. It's not enough to say we don't endorse it. I think they need to step up and say, look, we're not going to have that. That's not supporting me. You're making me look bad. That's not who we are. I don't want that. And you're not welcome here if you're going to do that.
1: By saying nothing, they're saying it's okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And the same thing goes in anyone's home. The parents have to be the leaders who have that same right responsibility. Unfortunately, though, I do think social media is a venue that has allowed people this this freedom that they think they have to say and do whatever they want.
0: You're reading my mind because the next question I was gonna ask you is about social media and its impact. And I got several things that I want to ask you about that because you work with this population so much, the young people. And I worry sometimes that parents are using laptops, video games, computers as electronic babysitters for their children. It's like, hey, if they can go over in a corner and sit there with a yeah. video game for right. six hours, I don't have to do anything. Right. That's easy. Right. Now when we were growing up, it was just the T V. Right. And there were three channels and that you would watch them and that right. was it. But now you know what there's five hundred channels and then you've got YouTube All this content people can watch. But I'm really wondering, has social media truly changed this generation? Because it has become so much more prolific in the last 10 years, and certainly in the last 20 years, but really in the last 10 years. We're in our 18th season. And when I started Dr. Phil, the first tweet had not been sent. I don't think the first text had been sent. Yeah. Emails were really in their infancy. There weren't any smartphones. Everybody (laughs) didn't have a camera in their hand. The internet just wasn't near as prolific as it was now. So I'm dealing with a whole different set of challenges and problems with people in general and certainly the younger generation than I was 18 years ago. Do you think it's changed this generation?
1: I think it's changed it 100%. Uh, not all for the bad but some some has been okay but it has given people a unspoken license to just do whatever they want whenever they want record whatever they want post it get people in trouble all kind of stuff it has been a weapon more than it's been helpful to be honest with you and at least in the population i see
0: well that's what i'm concerned about because i wonder certainly we have a little bit of a narcissistic generation, not just the young people, all people. Yeah. It's like everybody thinks they need to have an audience when they're brushing their teeth. Exactly. It's like we gotta post this. Right. We gotta get to Instagram right. with this or right. YouTube with this. I'm brushing my teeth. I'm feeding right. my dog. Right. Let's you know, turn on the camera. <laughs> right. Are you it's kidding crazy. me? <laughs> right. It's crazy. And so many, particularly young people, measure their self-worth as a function of how many likes they get for exactly. a video. I'm seeing depression among young people because They'll put something up, and it only got half as many likes as it did yesterday. Right. It's like right. people not like me anymore? These are strangers. They don't know who these people are, right. but they seem to get really upset, and they're measuring their self-worth as a function of their social media platform yeah. and popularity
1: right? Yeah, absolutely and then there's this other side where I have you know you these v- vehicles of me- technology and media are in the hands of young kids that don't have brains that are fully formed with their judgment their insight their impulse control intact their frontal lobe they're taking pictures they're sending nude pictures back and forth I can't tell you how many times I've been pulled into a case where a young boy or a young girl has forwarded pictures that have been sent to them And they're a sex criminal at that point, and they have to register, and their parents are out getting lawyers, and these kids are 12 and 15 years old. That's the other part of
0: this. Talk about the cyberbullying aspect of it as well, because we didn't invent bullying in this generation. It's gone on forever and ever and ever. But when I was growing up, bullying took place at school. If you were out on the bus dock waiting for your bus, there was a bully out there, or in the cafeteria or in the locker room when you were taking gym class or out behind the gym or whatever. But when you went home, you were away from the bully. Right. You at least had a safe haven in your home. But now, with cyberbullying, where people are getting messages, we hate you, why don't you just kill yourself, you're right. ugly, nobody cares about you, et cetera, et cetera, you go home that cyberbullying follows you home. Yep. You can even, as a parent, say, well, there's just been a really bad adjustment at this school, so I'm going to take my child out of this school and put him in a new school. The cyberbully has no boundary, so you can move him to a new school, and the cyberbullying just continues there because it had nothing to do right. with the boundaries of the right. school. So they cannot escape because the cyberbullies Are everywhere. It can follow them wherever they go. It can change states and it can follow them. And I just really wonder if the bullying has become more prolific or if we just see it more because of the internet. I think there's a whole new category of bully with cyberbullying that didn't exist before. So I do think there's more bullying. I
1: think there's a lot more, and here's the other issue. Yes, when it happened when we were younger, it was the kid at lunch or whatever, we go home and get away from it, and we didn't have to deal with it, but when this kid goes home, nowadays, before they even get home, t- two million people could know. Right. And it's like a virus that has spread that they feel this intense anxiety, a spotlight. No wonder they're gonna hurt themselves. There's no way to get away from it either. It's not just two or three kids that had heard it. Now, two million people hear it, and their picture could be up there. It's It's, it's a nightmare. And then these kids want to hurt themselves, and they do. They actually do. They p- they're they panicked.
0: And, of course, I call them keyboard bullies because yep. people will say things on the Internet that they would never say standing next to you in an elevator. That's right. They would never say sitting next to you in the cafeteria if they had to look you in the eye. Right. But because they have the anonymity of being on a keyboard where they don't have to deal with the interpersonal aspect of it. They don't have to look you in the eye. They don't have to stand there and deal with the interpersonal pressure of saying what they said or doing what they do. They have a whole boldness about them with the keyboard that they say hurtful, mean things that they just wouldn't do in person. Yeah, the,
1: the keyboard allows them not to, to bypass feeling guilt, bypass feeling that they have a, an obligation to somebody. Any of those feelings you would get one-to-one and in looking in somebody's eyes saying that they don't ever, they get to avoid all that. And that's what the internet has allowed. That kind of stuff for like super ego development and to feel bad and have empathy about what you're doing or saying.
0: I wonder too if because of so much interaction With texting and the shorthand of texting and all of that, if our interpersonal skills are eroding as well.
1: 100%
0: again. Because we don't have to interact. Right. When I was growing up, there was a progression that we went through in relationships. You know, we first would talk to a girl, and then you would kind of hold hands with a girl. And then you would maybe go steady with a girl. Then you would kind of get to the point where, okay, now you're going to start making out some. And then you're going to start maybe get to a point where you date some. And so you would have the chance to kind of get experience at each little step as you matured. Right. So you would mature as you got experience in relationships. Now, it seems like you go from zero to 100 in one step. Yep, you're in bed on the first tweet. Really, it seems to get very intimate really fast. Yep. And, you know, I said we had three channels when we were growing up. What was allowed as stimulus material back then was very conservative in what kids saw. They just didn't see anything provocative on television. They didn't even see a kiss. They didn't see anything that was sexually provocative or suggestive. There weren't provocative lines said in a sitcom or whatever. I saw a study recently, and I'm going to be very vague because I don't remember the exact statistic, but it was something like every... 23 seconds or something, there was a sexually provocative line said in a sitcom. Yeah. What was shown in terms of semi-nudity or sexually suggestive situations or circumstances on network television, compared to what was shown in the 60s, even the 70s, was dramatically different. I'm sure, yeah, of course. So kids are getting suggestive material thrown at him at a very right. young age and
1: stimulated at a very young age it's, yeah. it's abuse on some yeah. level it's it's abusive because it's like somebody a parent has this porn on television the kid's always with an earshot i mean it's, it's that kind of stuff where it's passively stimulating it's interesting when i i have a, an adult patient who's like a mother who's divorced and she's going through a relationship for the first time dating and it's online it's different she's like foreign so it's all foreign to her and she'll have a texting relationship with somebody she met, and she'll be texting for two or three months before she ever even spoke to the person, and she's floored by that. Where their child is dating, and they don't expect to ever speak to the person until they're either going to have sex with them or never speak to them. And so the generation just look at all that, and they're exposed to so many different things, and it's just so far into an older generation.
0: Listen, I'm not trying to be puritanical about it, yeah. and I don't think we can change it. No. Television is what it is. I have scripted programming. I have, you know, reality program. We deal with stuff here that is not fit for children on Dr. Phil and we put a disclaimer at the front this is not suitable for kids today because right. we're talking about maybe sexual abuse or rape or we have someone on that's gotten into drugs and prostitution or whatever and we say up front this is not suitable for family viewing or whatever. What I am getting at is this Because this is reality, doesn't this put a burden, a challenge on the parents to get more involved and have a conversation with their kids, knowing that they're being pushed along much faster, that they're getting stimulated much earlier, and that they may find themselves in a relationship at a much more intimate level, both emotionally and physically before they're mature enough to handle it. Doesn't this tell parents that they need to prepare the child because the reality is what it is? Yes. That they need to sit down with that child and say, okay, look, we need to have a talk here because you're going from zero to a hundred really fast. Let's talk about what that means. Because it's a long way to fall when that relationship falls apart. Absolutely, yes. And they need to talk to them about how to handle that, what to expect. And they need to talk to them about sex and probably do it earlier and maybe in more detail and more intently than they would a generation ago. Yes,
1: because the disconnect is these kids are having these relationships much quicker. They're falling apart quicker, but the parents aren't even having a chance to really get into the details that they need to early enough. And so they're not at all equipped. And it's a whole world that... That's really what the new look at parenting should be. How do parents of today parent their children in this kind of, you know, environment? Because they're not at all preparing them. And certainly it's not timely if they
0: are. Yeah, And interestingly enough, in the face of all of this, the teen pregnancy rate is going down in the midst of all of this. Why do you think that is?
1: Because at the same point with all of that awareness kids are having access to things they wouldn't typically easily have had access to in the past. So they can get to Planned Parenthood. They can get pregnancy tests. They can take morning after pills. They can get on birth control. They can use a condom. They're very well educated about all that stuff, which is the positive end of all of this. So they are being proactive. So there is not all bad, and it's not all good, but we really have to take a look at where we are shortfalling so that these kids have the talks and the tools they need to be much more successful.
0: Yeah. If you look, in 1990, the birth rate per 1,000 with females from 15 to 19 was 42.5. Yeah. And now, in 2017 was the last year that they had full data yeah. for, it's 13.4 among whites. And if you look at Hispanic, black, white, all combined, it was 599 in 90, and it's down to 18.8 in 2017. So, Something's working I mean, it's a little bit. like a third yeah. of what it was in 1990.
1: You can say it's whatever the reason is. Kids are narcissistic. They don't want kids, or kids have access to tools or the ability to prevent it. Whatever it is, it's working, and it's great because then kids aren't born into bad situations.
0: That's a very positive trend, whether it's that they're taking more protections or they're having less sex? No, I think they're still having sex,
1: at least the ones I see.
0: What are you seeing in terms of parenting right now? And I'm curious. I think sometimes people think that the Department of Child and Family Services is an agency that deals with minorities and low socioeconomic status populations and they may be overrepresented, but the fact of the matter is, that's just not true. You find problems with children being in harm's way, neglected, abused, whatever, that cuts across all ethnicity and across all socioeconomic strata, true?
1: Absolutely, it doesn't matter what zip code you live in, what your income is. People are people, they have the same issues, they become more apparent sometimes if they're lower socioeconomic, they become more apparent to people and they're reported more. But eventually other people have it too and it gets reported. So it's across the board.
0: What is the biggest problem you see that children are experiencing today that causes the Department of Child and Family Services to have to get involved? Are we talking negligence, abuse? What kind of abuse? What gets you and your team involved more than anything?
1: The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Usually negligence on some level, there's an emotional negligence or there's a physical because most of the mandated reporters calling in are teachers or people who are in contact with kids all day long. And they're seeing them not being fed or cared for or bathed or clothed or protected in the ways that they should. And so that triggers a call. And usually it starts off with a neglect. And sometimes it leads into there's physical abuse or something else going on in the house. But oftentimes it just starts with a neglect situation. A lot of times it's domestic violence that leads us to that. But it's a neglect is the core. Either neglect because dad lost his job or mom lost their job. Or somebody's on drugs in the house and it just brought the whole house down. But usually it's it's a neglect that triggers it.
0: Are most of the referrals from mandated reporters?
1: Yeah, most of them, I'd say 70 to 80% are. Really? Yeah.
0: And I assume that's mostly teachers, people that are yeah. most in contact teachers, with
1: the kids. Teachers, um, policemen, uh, clergy, that kind of stuff. Right. Therapists are a big one.
0: And what happens when you get a report from a mandated reporter? Someone calls in and says, I have a child in my third grade class. This child doesn't seem to have had a shower within the last two weeks, and you can see their ribs. (laughs) They're really malnourished, and I saw bruises on them. They call that report in to the hotline. What happens? Well,
1: we don't always take everything that comes in because sometimes we'll give a consultation back to them and say, you know, check this and this and this, and then if you need to, come back. But if we do take it in as a referral— we map it out to where geographically it'll go. And we also map it out to see if it's something we need to do immediately. Can it wait three days or can it wait up to five days? Depending on what where that lays or lies or falls, then we we mobilize our teams. And some, if they go out tonight, then it's a detainment situation where we're really low and to look out and see, are they safe tonight or do we have to remove them from this situation? If they're going to wait three to five days or whatever they end up doing, we know it's not an immediate danger situation for a kid. Sometimes we'll just go to school the next day and see them or in three more days or we'll go to the house. But, you know, it's a slower process at least. But we have 30 days from the call to decide whether we're going to close it out and hook them up to whatever they need or we're going to move it into a situation where it becomes a case, a case now for us.
0: Now, if you have an emergency removal, they say there's a drug addict father in this home and there are guns in the home and we think there is an immediate real danger and you feel like you have to go remove the child from the home, where do they go?
1: We'll go with police, so we go with the joint effort and we'll take the kids and then we have a cadre of services and places, depending on what they have and what their needs are. Most of the kids will, if they're gonna be detained, will go through a process at our medical hubs where our that's a system that I'd set up about 10 years ago where every child that's entering the system gets the same eyeballs, same exam by the same expert, a a forensic pediatrician who will look at them for abuse and neglect medically, and then a mental health expert who will look at them for abuse and neglect from a mental health perspective. Based on those findings, then they get funneled into the system for their needs. They'll probably stay living in the area that they were taken from if we can do it, and we try to keep sibling groups together, but sometimes we can't.
0: Mm -hmm. But if possible, you keep brothers and sisters together and do you use family resources first if there's an aunt or an uncle yeah, that they we try go to. do with?
1: Yeah, the relative caregivers are our first option. But if they're not fingerprinted or they're not, you know, live scanned or whatever, and we don't know who else is in the home, we can't put a child in a home even though grandma's there because we don't know if uncle is there and cousin and all that. So we go to a place where we know we have it all worked out and we know who's in the house and it's safe. And then we work backwards to get them back to their relative.
0: What percentage of these are drug-driven now with this opioid crisis and heroin, whatever drugs? What percentage of the cases that come to DCFS have the complication of drugs involved?
1: I would say about 65%. Really? So it's, it's a major very factor. very prevalent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it either goes from a social thing to a, an addiction or it's already a coping skill for that family. There are many families making meth that you would never know they're doing it in their trunks of their cars at night they're doing it in out in the field somewhere if they're in the far out like Valencia or you know Palmdale there's a lot of that going on so drugs are very prevalent
0: so they're actually making the drugs yeah, yeah. not just using them but making them and distributing them yeah
1: absolutely we had a couple a call a couple months ago where an elderly person had been found dead in their apartment and when the firemen went out or whoever, they found that there was a meth lab underneath and the fumes is what, are what killed the person. And in that home where the meth lab was were children, Or we would have never found out.
0: Wow. That's pretty hard to imagine.
1: Yes, it is. And it's very painful to watch and go through, but got to go through it.
0: Now, we're in Hollywood out here, which is, you know, la-la land, glamour, with a lot of these very well-to-do families, high-economic, high-profile, kind of glamour sort of situations. You find some children in very dire straits in these situations as well, true? Absolutely. The fact of the matter is there are some very high-profile people that just aren't very attentive to their children.
1: They're not even there. They're absent. They have housekeepers, they have nannies, they have caregivers, that's great, because your kid isn't out there on its own, but they're not being raised by them. And the little bit that they do get raised and interact with their parent, it's not enough at all. And it really it doesn't allow a child to grow the way that they should, emotionally.
0: And it creates a problem.
1: Huge problem, and, and these children, rightfully so, are angry as they grow up. That anger is what's used, and they use it against themselves. They get on drugs or they get, you know, they're pregnant or somehow they derail their life at the cost of not having a
0: parent. And it's sad. Yeah. They find a way to blame themselves and they turn that anger inward, of course. Right. And that's where we see cutting and right. things like that.
1: Vomiting, eating disorders, self-harm, all kind of stuff like that.
0: You know, then, of course, not dealing with the child population, we're seeing an awful lot of anxiety and depression in society right now, because things are moving like really, really fast, That's right? Are we over medicating our society right now?
1: I think at times, yes, because we're not allowing people to know here you do have a depression or yes, you have a, an anxiety issue. There are non-medicinal issues and tools to be able to use that'll help you so much better and give you a toolbox full of things to, to access when you need it, because the pill reliance is not a good thing
0: has medicine truly become a high volume business? I mean, in order for a physician to make the kind of living they wanna make or used to make, has it gotten to the point that they've gotta turn them and burn them? They gotta really move them through?
1: Volume's the key, absolutely. Yeah, that's the only way to make money. You gotta see the numbers of people are what's gonna bring the money. And so with that, that's not therapy for an hour, That's, that's medication, prescription, prescription, prescription. And that's a sad situation because you really don't get to know the people. And really, is that the best solution for them? Could they be doing other therapies? Could they be doing other self-improvement things that will give them what they need to carry them through their life, not a pill with a prescription for a month?
0: How did we get in this opioid crisis? I mean, obviously, the composition of the pills were marketed originally as these are no problem. They're not going to be highly addictive, et cetera, et cetera. That's how they were originally marketed. And we're seeing now these multi-billion dollar settlements from the originators, so that's being acknowledged. But this is epidemic proportions now. What the hell is going on?
1: They're given out like candy. You can get your wisdom teeth done at the age of 15, you're given a full month's worth of, of, of an opioid. Like And parents don't know they're giving it to their kid before you know it, the kid's addicted. I mean, they're coming at us from every angle,
0: pediatricians, dentists, you name it. They're just written. It's crazy. Well, what's the solution? How do we start to curtail this? Because what I'm seeing, and, you know, we deal with it a lot on Dr. Phil, is I'm seeing a lot of people that start taking the pills for what they consider legitimate reasons. Right they had a surgery, they had an injury or something where oh, yeah. they had organic pain, they actually needed something to right. deal with the pain. So they start taking it for what would be considered a legitimate reason. But statistics say if they're still taking it at seven days, their chance of being addicted at one year is 12.5%. If they're still taking it at 30 days, their chance of being addicted at one year is a little over 30%. Yeah, it just it's huge. Then what I'm seeing is, It gets very expensive, and heroin is much cheaper. Yes. So I'm seeing a whole new generation of heroin addicts in suburban moms. I call them soccer mom addicts that can't afford the opioids anymore. So they're now turning to heroin because it's cheaper. These are people that would never have considered themselves vulnerable to getting on heroin but they can't afford the other, so now they're going to heroin and they have no idea what they're taking, they have no idea what it's cut with, sometimes it's got fentanyl in it, they overdose. So what do we do? How do we rein in the physicians from over-prescribing this?
1: Well, I'm currently on the educational board of the DEA, and that's what we're focused on, how to educate doctors and how to put the parameters into place to make physicians have a checkpoint and a system To be able to be educated, but also to be checked as far as their writing of these kinds of substances so that red flags can be raised. We're always going to have the on the street value, you know, people on the street selling it, or the doctor who's in the corner of a strip mall who's just writing all day long for people. Those people will be easy to find when we have everyone else as regulated as we can. And so that's the key public information and education, doctor education, and monitoring.
0: Well, how can they know, though, if we don't have a system where a doctor in Bakersfield is able to punch something up and know what a doctor just across the state line into Arizona prescribed or somebody in LA prescribed. Doesn't there have to be a database where you can't doctor hop?
1: Yes. Right now that database is kept within the pharmacies. So if I write a prescription for you and you take it to CVS, they're going to call me and say, do you know this guy just got this about two weeks ago in Florida? I'll know that. So that's the database there, but it has to be a doctored one as well, and that's what we're working on.
0: Yeah, but right now it's just the drugstores themselves, the pharmacists. Right,
1: and we count on that because they can all connect with each other, and they can tell us.
0: But is it the same if you go to Rite Aid and CVS? Yep. They communicate between themselves.
1: Yeah, there's a global network that tells us who got what when.
0: And what happens?
1: Do they not give it? Yeah, I don't. they won't give it. And then, if you're pushing as the doctor for them to get it, then they either have to whittle another pharmacy. Pharmacist comes on schedule after the to work, that's more comfortable doing it, or go to another pharmacy that will open do it. And that's oftentimes why people are moving toward a private pharmacy because they can get things filled there. They're not going to necessarily come up in the database so quickly.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there's always a loophole. There's hole. always a Wait, exactly. Always a loophole.
1: Yeah, and someone will find it. <laughs> always. <laughs> but education is the key, and educating people and parents. Take Advil when your kid gets their teeth out, their wisdom teeth. They don't need to have an opioid. I mean, that's crazy. Or the nose job that they're going to get when they probably shouldn't get it anyway. They don't need an opioid.
0: Let's say somebody is a recovering addict, and they get into an accident, they have to have a significant surgery, and pain is going to be a major issue. How are they dealing with that? You don't want to give a recovering addict a drug of choice. Right.
1: What do you do with I that? mean, It's a tough situation, but if you can get away with non-narcotic stuff, that's great. There is a lot of good stuff out there. And if that doesn't work, then it is in small doses and well-controlled and watching it as closely as you can. And the patient being aware that that's what's going on.
0: Why did you choose psychiatry?
1: You really want to know? Yeah. I did it in the summer and I liked it.
0: It stuck with you?
1: Yeah, I was like, these people aren't making this stuff up. They really do hear voices.
0: So what appealed to you about it when you say it stuck with you? What appealed to you? I just
1: saw the suffering that these people were doing and it was real suffering. And they really didn't understand it. And um, when I was doing my residency, I was in the ER one night. There was a guy that was down there and... He was brought in because he was paralyzed from the waist down and they MRI, nobody could find anything was wrong with him. So they had psychiatry come down I went down and I talked to the guy and after 45 minutes he walked down to the ER. And it really stuck with me that I had that ability to touch somebody and get them to think differently and get up and get out of pain and walk. So that was really impactful for me.
0: Is that still what lights you up in working with these people?
1: Yes, and especially with kids and families to get them organized and get them thinking differently, quickly, on a path, and they're happier.
0: When you work with people, obviously, they're suffering, they're looking for answers, whether it's individually, as a couple, or as a family. Do you have a sense of why there's such a stigma still, even today, with mental illness? I'll tell you why I'm asking it. I was involved yesterday with an organization called Blue Help, which deals with suicide with police officers. And you know my commitment to law enforcement and how much I'm interested in supporting the men and women that stand in the gap for the rest of us. There were 223 suicides last year among police officers. There were more people lost to suicide than were killed in the line of duty. And we're 60 days into 2020. And there have already been 30 suicides among men and women in uniform in law enforcement. There have already been 30 in the first 60 days of this year. So we're tracking ahead of what things have been. And What I did yesterday is I was talking to this organization, BlueHelp.org, and I had women here whose husbands had committed suicide. Some of them were on the job as little as five months. Some of them had been on the job for 28 years. And one woman that had been on the job for 28 years that had taken her life. And we listened to an interesting 911 call where An officer had gotten suicidal ideation, was very upset, fired his gun off, but didn't fire it at himself. He just was frustrated and shot his gun into the ground. His wife called. There was an hour long 911 call. We just played a little bit of it. But most of the call was Oh my God, what have I done? I've ruined his career. He will never forgive me that I've called in 911. I've ruined his career. He was suicidal. Now I've done this. He's going to really be suicidal now. And he was ready to be promoted to the next level immediately. I mean, it was imminent within the next week. And that was put on hold, sure enough, for three years. Wow. Although he did eventually get promoted, but he was frozen for three years, and every one of these people said, "There's no way that their spouse would have asked for help because of the stigma, yeah it's seen as weakness, yep, it's seen as you're broken, yep, and they would never do it, so the stigma is really profound in the law enforcement community, but it's still so strong in society in general yeah it is why do you think that is
1: i think like some of the reasons you said it is you know it's embarrassing i'm weak i'm this but i think it's a big thing when you can't measure something and so like you can't see a bruise you can't see a cut you can't see a a crutch or an x-ray can't prove it and so i think that adds to the fact that people think well maybe they think i'm faking and i'm not for real and so you know, what's the point? I might as well not say anything because it's embarrassing to not be able to show what you're complaining about. That's a big part of it.
0: And I think they might be afraid that they don't think they're faking and think they're crazy. Yep. And crazy, in quotes, being a very generic term where we look at it and recognize there are the category of personality disorders, right. neuroses, right. psychoses. Neurologically based disorders. We don't lump everything together. But generally society just says, you know, that guy's right. quote crazy and they're never seen the same again.
1: No, but it's also you can't prove if they are or not, because you can't measure anything. Right. Is the other thing. And that's in foster care we do that a lot. I mean, there are so many hidden bruises that we can't convince people of.
0: And I think people label themselves as well. That's why the term iatrogenic label is so meaningful to me. And what I mean by that, if listeners aren't familiar with the term, an iatrogenic label is when the label creates more problems than what it describes. Right. You give somebody a label of being psychotic or having a personality disorder, And just the fact that they've been given that label creates more problems in their lives than the disorder would generate with its symptomology. Right. So if you write in their record at work, at a corporation or something, you write down that diagnosis, just the fact that it's in their record will create more problems for them than the actual symptoms. Traits or characteristics would hold them back in doing their job. And you think back to the longitudinal studies. I don't know if it was Bailey and Bailey or it was someone in that generation that, and you couldn't do this today, fortunately, I guess, but they had a group of students that were matched in every way and they divided them into two groups. They were matched on IQ, age, grades. And in one half of the group, they wrote that they were, and I don't remember the exact words they used, but they wrote that they were slow, that they were just not quite normal. And the other group, they wrote that they were really bright, but matched in every way. They had the same IQ. They had the same grades. There was no difference between them, but they labeled one as really being slow and the other is being really bright. And then they followed them for 20 years, yeah, all the way through school and then actually into life, as I recall. And the power of the label was unbelievable because the teacher's expectations were less for those that were labeled as being less capable and more for those that were labeled as more capable. And so they challenged these students more, challenged these students less. less And so their achievement levels were less. Crazy. But I'm sure. I mean, that's exactly what happens with the label. And while I always say I want to get rid of the stigma, I can't in good faith say that there's not some basis for it. Right. There is some price to be paid. When I say, listen, I look at having an anxiety neurosis or a phobia the same as having a kidney infection or something. That may be true. I look at it that way, but I can't tell you that your employer does. That's right, exactly. I can't tell you that coworkers do. Right. They should, but they don't. Right,
1: and they're not made to.
0: And I don't know how we're going to get rid of that.
1: Well, it's just the more, more and more people that step up and own it and are not ashamed—that's the only way to do it.
0: Yeah, you know, I think we really work hard to push this to the forefront of the narrative in America. You definitely do. We have millions of viewers. But it's a small percentage of America. I mean, we're the number one show, but it's still an insignificant percentage. I mean, it's 336 million people in America. And, you know, we may have 5 million people a day that watch the show. What's that? 2%? 1%? I mean, but it still
1: does something, which yeah. is great. And yeah, that's the only way to do it. Push the agenda and push it and push it and push it. Break the stereotype and all of the, the feelings that come from it because people get scared. When they see that, they think there's, you know, they don't know. Are they making it up? Are they going to kill me? Are they psychotic? I mean, it's all kind of stuff all across the board. But breaking that stigma and educating people, pushing it and pushing it, the only way to do it. And you do it well. You do a great job.
0: Well, part of it is people labeling themselves. Yeah, some of it is, yes. The thing I want people to do is whether it's a family member or themselves, I think they have to recognize when something has reached the level of needing professional intervention versus just being kind of quirky.
1: Right. That's the thing.
0: We all have people in our families that have certain traits or characteristics that are a little eccentric. Yes. And we can decide that they're charming right (laughs) right we can just decide that you know the fact that he lines his peas up in a row every day that before he (laughs) can tolerate uh, that that he doesn't like his food to touch each other or that person has to do things a certain way or maybe is just you know a little odd right we can just decide that's eccentric or it's charming but there's a point at which it's above the average person's pay grade. Yes. There's a point at which they say, this is dysfunctional to the point that it needs intervention, it needs help. How do you define that to people? How do you tell somebody, this has crossed the threshold, you need to get professional help for this?
1: I tell them that they, I teach them how to look at their life in general in some key areas. There's like five areas I look at. And It's called, I call it sweep, so because it looks like, you know, people can remember that. They look at their sleep, they look at their, you know, their eating, the way they deal with their emotions, what they do for, you know, hobbies and play and all that kind of stuff. And those five areas
0: sleep, work, eating, emotion, and play. Right.
1: Those five areas, if anything's coming up in those areas, we got to address it on some level. If three of those five areas are not functioning, that's when you need some help because you're not working in sync with yourself, even. Yeah. So that's kind of a general way to look at it because people won't come for help if they don't need to. They're afraid, the stigma, all of that stuff. And family members need to push sometimes.
0: And the problem is we don't have a very good definition of normal. Right. You go to the library and you go over to the abnormal psychology section, reams, I mean, stacks and stacks, book and book and right. book and book right. on abnormal behavior, abnormal psychology, abnormal interactions, relationships, all of that. You go to the normal section, there's one little pamphlet (laughs) down there. Exactly. It's kind of yellowed and it's laying by itself. We don't really have an idea of what's normal because it's so idiosyncratic. But the way I look at this is something has gotten to the point of being abnormal or changeworthy if it's interfering with the healthy pursuit of your goals right like let's say for example you have a temper you have a tendency to get into rage and that's interfering with your job it's interfering with a peaceful tranquil home it's interfering with your relationship with friends okay now that becomes change worthy right if you just occasionally get upset you get irritated. Okay. Everybody does. Right. Does that interfere with your job? Are they not promoting you because you get into rages? Ned, that's changeworthy. You need to see somebody right. about this. You gotta look at that. If it's causing your marriage to go on the rocks, it's interfering with your goal. Right. But if you're just irritable occasionally, yeah. okay, then work on your irritability. Right. But I say if it's interfering with pursuit of your goals. Now you need to do something about it. I agree. I think that's when people need to say, okay, I need help, whether it's for me or somebody else. A hundred percent. Using LA County as an example, where can people go if they don't have money? They can't afford a therapist. Does the county offer resources?
1: Yes, many, many resources and very good resources at that. So we have a million hotlines to call and there's hotlines to call even if you're looking for a place to get to live and to apply for housing, there's a, a number, it's a 211 actually, and they'll direct you to anything you're looking for, whether it's food stamps or it's a housing or it's a school for your kid or mental health treatment or medical treatment. They'll send you to these places and then you get on assistance or whatever you need, but you can begin the help immediately. So there are a lot of
0: resources in this county. Well, that's what I want people to know because I think sometimes people feel like, okay, docs, I hear you. I get it. I have changeworthy worthy behavior here. I hear you, you preach preaching to the choir. My spouse has told me, my kids have told me, I've lost my job, I get it. But sorry, I just don't have the money to go right. see a therapist. I know because I did this when I was in graduate school, we had to go volunteer at the County Mental Health Association and there you saw people based on their ability to pay. Right. Everybody paid something because they wanted them invested in the therapy. Exactly. I think I recall at the time, our lowest was $2. Yeah. $2 a session.
1: And it still works that way in certain places.
0: And if you were there and you had a good job, it would be as much as maybe $18 a session. It was still very... That's really cheap. Yeah, it was still very cheap, but it was on a sliding scale. And I want people to know, that if you feel like you're alone and you don't have help, that's not true. You can call the county, and they're going to have resources for you. A lot you. of resources. And they may not be fancy, but these are competent and caring people. Absolutely. And An there area. are support groups, yeah. and you might encounter somebody that you would see in a silk stocking practice that's down there volunteering. Absolutely. A lot of people do that. And there are helplines that you can call. And when you call these helplines, I think it's so important for you to understand— they don't make you give your name. They don't pressure you to do anything you don't right. want to do. They listen. They talk. They answer your questions. They don't pressure you. You're not going to start some ball rolling. They're not going to trace your number and come to your house and then right. your or spouse knows. You. Or deport you. That's or what, deport
1: you. We run into that all the time in L.A. County. People are fearful of getting deported that's so they won't go get help. Yeah. Or if we have a child that's in our, our under our jurisdiction – The family needs help. We can't get them help. They won't give us their name or they're afraid of being deported. So we actually go in and just do the treatment we don't even ask so that we can heal them and they can get together again.
0: There's a great clinic in Detroit that Mitch Album has started and I'm a supporter of that is open 24 hours a day and you go to this clinic and everything is done there you get treated there. If you need medicine, they give it to you there. They don't take your name. They don't call social services. If you're homeless and you come in with your child, they treat your child. They give you the antibiotics. They give you everything there. You don't go anywhere else. And the place is packed every night because people won't go to the hospital because as soon as you walk through the door, they call social services, and they come down here and take yep, the child. Exactly. So you got to meet people where they are if you want to help them.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, we go down to um, home, the homeless shelters on Skid Row, and oftentimes um, people are looking for adults that have kids sleeping outside with them or whatever. And it's amazing the extent that people will go to hide their children in these boxes and under blankets because they don't want them stolen. So yeah. the only way to do that is make it safe for them and say, where are your kids? We'll help you, not take them. And so we've started to shift that a lot, too.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. Yeah, it is. The thing that you and I are agreeing on is if you need help, it's out there. It's available. And the way to determine if you need help is if your thoughts or your behaviors, your actions have gotten to the point that they're interfering with your life. And life is defined as sleep, work, eating, emotions fun, ability to play, and I define it as pursuing your goals. If it's interfering with your functioning, then you need to ask for help because it's not going to get better on its own.
1: It won't get better. It'll get worse. And the fear of not getting help is what's going to stop people. Don't be fearful. You don't even have to give your name half the time.
0: So don't think just because you don't have money that there's not help there. There is. You just need to reach out to the county. You know, call the hotline. You don't have to call nine one one. You know, right. here it's two one one. Two one one. Right. What is two one one?
1: It's a multiple resource line that will guide you to any resource you need in the area you live in. Yeah. So it couldn't be much more accommodating. Yeah. Two one one. No names asked. Nothing.
0: That's a great resource to know. So, listen. If you feel like you're in over your head, you're not alone. Right. There is help. There's a place to go. You don't have to have money. Just know if it's interfering, get help. It's out there. It's available. You can afford it. It will change your life as opposed to just suffering through it. Dr. Sophie? Yes, sir. I can't tell you how much I appreciate Uh, you doing this. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me.